Visionary conductor Edwin Outwater is reinventing the concert experience with major orchestras and institutions throughout the world. His long association with the San Francisco Symphony continues with multiple concerts and collaborations, including his fourth appearance in five years as conductor and curator in their acclaimed Soundbox series. I sat down with Edwin in Los Angeles to discuss his exciting career and his current projects, including Sound Health, a collaboration with soprano Renee Fleming, the Kennedy Center, and the National Institutes of Health. So, Edwin, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Nice to be here. So let's start with, um, I guess we should start with why you're in town. Oh. Or now. I guess I'm in town, yeah, for... (laughs) I'm in but town you're in town for, for vacation, right? You're not no, no, I'm in town for a family reason. I'm becoming a godfather of a niece. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then the day before, I'm doing a fundraiser for my festival, the Eastern Sierra Symphony up in Mammoth, okay, California. So, so since we're in L.A. and it's involving a lot of L.A. musicians, let's talk about the Eastern Sierra Symphony and, and how you put this together and what is it exactly? What is it? it <laughs> It is a unique orchestra. I, I think it was a festival that had been around for a long time. It was a lot of amateur musicians. And as it transitioned, there were more professional players. My friend Amy Creston, who's concertmaster of the Pasadena Symphony, took it over and kind of did a music director search. I was signed on. And we've decided, you know, it's small and it's wonderful. And we're trying to mold it very slowly and gradually into something different. And I think maybe one cool thing is that the orchestra is made up of professional musicians from Los Angeles, but also from places like the San Francisco Symphony, the Chicago Symphony, the St. Louis Symphony. And uh, they play alongside really good young kids, uh, mostly high school age, maybe early college. And then the other contingent is amateur musicians, some of whom are the people who've been playing in the orchestra for years. Some of them are people I've come across in my life who went to Juilliard, but now work for Airbnb, you know, and I think there's a whole subculture of people who really want to play still and who play really well. And I think that amazing kind of mix of students, amateurs and pros is really interesting. How did you all find Mammoth? I mean, obviously the group was up in Mammoth It had been there, yeah. So it kind of transformed. Kind of a vacation place for musicians. So I wonder if they just wanted somewhere to play while they were... Well, isn't every festival like that? I guess so. And I think there's something kind of cool and fun and boring about that idea that, oh, let's go up in some beautiful place and play music. We're already here. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, have a good time. But I think, like, transplanting a symphony orchestra into the mountains is not my favorite idea, and I wanted to make it really a festival. Like, so how are people inspired by each other? I think students inspire professionals if you're sitting next to them. Amateurs who are doing it for no money, you know. They're usually the most inspired. They're the most inspired. (laughs) And I think getting out of that culture of, you know, if you're going to a festival, it shouldn't be just your own professional life just put up in a pretty place. It should be something that challenges your perceptions of what music can be and what music making can be. So these were the parameters you were given as far as No, they're the parameters I created. I love it. So, and I, things I noticed, you know, that the orchestra was kind of already like that. And I decided to kind of double down on that idea. Okay. So how did you do that as far as repertoire selection? Well, everyone can play. So uh, I think it was just kind of taking things that the young kids, you know, Brahms II or Schumann IV, things they need to play and playing with really great musicians around them. Also, there's a pretty fair amount of new music, and so we have a composer residence every year. There's a lot more to come. This year we have Amir El-Safar. I don't know if you know him, but he's an incredible jazz trumpeter, 
um, studied with Bud Herseth in Chicago, plays classically, and is then kind of relearned how to play the trumpet. He's a, of Iraqi heritage and learned Iraqi traditions and other Eastern music traditions. So he'll he's working on an opera for Covent Garden, I think, um, and, and uh, he's going to write some new stuff for us up there. We're playing music by Owen Pallett this year, playing music by Nat Stuckey, Gabby Frank, Jesse Montgomery. This year we're at little George Walker. So it's kind of my own version of new music and what's interesting to me as well. And it's a rate over, what, a three-day... It's three days, yeah. Yeah, two big orchestra concerts, and uh, it's been fun. It's definitely the opposite of everything else I've ever done because it's not a giant institution. It's it's a very kind of self-starting thing, and it was a challenge I've never had, so it's been kind of fun to do it. And you like these kind of challenges, it seems. Yeah, I, I don't looking... want to keep doing the same thing over and over yeah, again. I, I mean, know. I want to, meaning, well, except for being a musician and trying to do a piece of music better every time and, you know, be a better conductor, I, I like... I like anything that might change the the scape of the orchestra world, you know, because I think it's so hard to change, and I think it needs to change. So yeah. definitely needs to change. Yeah. So, well, tell me some things that you're, you see as you're out and about that do need to change, or that you're just kind of I don't, don't want to say sick of. It's kind of cliche. I'm not really sick of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's just. I think I actually am like the prime audience for a basic orchestra concert, like. So you put together what you want to hear. Yeah, no, but even if I went to like a regular Chicago Symphony subscription concert and they're doing like Dvorak Six and the Schumann Piano Concerto and some, you know, I, I'd be great for that. that and that no one told great, me anything. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't need, I, but I, I found very quickly that many audience members are not me and, and really are actually interested in what's going on. It's true. But, yeah. Um, orchestras have been in their own island for so long. They are trying now to give more information, but. Even in very, very sophisticated cities and towns, I think the level of uh, music education that happened uh, just wasn't enough, you know. And so the audience is coming in kind of not knowing what they're hearing, whereas they used to know more. And so the question is, how do we give them that interest? And then there are a lot of people who are curious about art or science or politics. I call maybe NPR people, you know, people who really want to know more about classical music, but they don't know how to find out. And certainly the concert hall is not giving them that information. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the point of this. Is, really? Yeah, is to have a platform so that people could just click on something in their car and whoosh, yeah. there's, you know, all these new pe- all these people doing new things. And let's say, you know, and some orchestras try to do it and it's great, but it's kind of 1980s, like Alistair Cook Masterpiece Theater, even now in 2018. And I think... If you're 32 or 33 and you're, you know, you're interested, you might know an artist or two, you might know, be interested in hearing Beethoven or Brahms, you know, you thought about it, uh, how do, once they're in, how can they get turned on or how do you get them coming back? So since you place, you know, all over the country, all over the world, where are you noticing other pockets where the audience is a little bit more experimental or interested in that and other pockets where they're more conservative? Definitely. I mean, and that has to do with the culture of the town. But it also has to do with what the orchestra's been doing over a period of time. It has to do with demographics and, you know, waves of of audiences, younger groups and older groups. And are you getting kind of a mix from, say, administration and audience, where maybe one wants to move in a more progressive way and the other doesn't, or...? I think audiences are pretty game. They are, right? That's what I'm noticing, And I think administrations are just afraid of, like, one or two nasty letters. I mean, they live in fear. And and the reason that a lot of orchestra administrations live in fear is because they're just trying to make it every year. 
Absolutely. You know, it's not it's not because they don't care that they don't want to change. It's because they're trying to get fill large halls, you know, multiple times every year. And if people don't know what they're hearing, you know, then they won't come. I can, even if it's great. I can um, imagine there's times when maybe one or two donors in some of these groups are keeping the entire thing afloat. That can happen, but also the little things count. Like if you lose 10% of subscriptions, that's a that's a big big deal, especially as you're trying to hit zero every year, you know, basically break even is is a nonprofit thing. So, I think there's no room for experimentation, there's no room to fail, and that's the hardest thing, I think. Right, right, because so much of the, in fact, the music that we love came out of that kind of atmosphere, right, of experimentation and failure and disaster and then just moved on into the next thing. So when people say, oh, well, if you just play new music in symphony orchestras, people will love it and come and it'll be great. It's not true, actually. I mean, we can get there, but if you don't know what you're, if someone said to you, okay, you're going to pay $100 to see this person you've never heard of, play something you don't know, and why would you go? You know, unless your friends kind of, you really trusted the people taking you there. And I think even for some people, if it's new music, it doesn't mean they like it or don't like it or they're against it. It's just they don't know what it is, and so they don't know to invest their time and money into it yet. And I think that's the most kind of realistic evaluation of the whole thing. And so if they know what Tchaikovsky is, which they probably do, or they know what Mozart is, they're more likely to come. And then you know, hopefully there's a way to get them into more adventurous things. And usually if they're in the hall and we do something adventurous, they like it. It's not that it's, you know, going to turn them away or make it a negative experience. Right. And I've noticed also if the, if the audience is kind of pre-paved to like it, but as far as concert talks and a lot of discussion before on what they're listening to, it changes their experience. Or yeah. not their experience, their attitude. Yeah, I mean, if people, or if they trust... The person presenting it, they trust the institution and they trust the conductor or they trust the soloist. Then they can, you know, if they keep coming back, then they start to buy into the to the adventure. But the first thing, if you do a concert of composers that no one has ever heard of in an audience, in a 3,000-seat hall, that's a tough call. Tough that's sell. A tough, or it's a tough sell, and, and I can understand that. But that's what you're looking for. I mean, that that's the adventure you want to have. So how do we get there? So one way that seems like that you're getting there is collaborating with composers, living composers. So can we talk about the your album with Nico? And that was the um, From Here On Out. Yeah. Right? So let's talk about your album um, From Here On Out, which is a collection of collaborations with composers. Yes. Tell me how that came about. The and gift that keeps on giving. It's still being played all the time. Like I just got an email two days ago. It's like, oh, you're on BBC Three again, and like added to their list. And you know that album came out years ago. So tell me about how the how the collaboration came about, and how you selected these composers, and what it was like working with them. Well, I think some of them I worked with, and some of them I didn't before. And I've met all of them at this point. But I think when I got to Kitchener. Waterloo Symphony, which was my music director position for many years, my first thought is, how can we be special? How can we be great in our city, in our community, and how could we be recognized outside our community? And I think at that time, I seemed to be identifying composers who hadn't yet been recorded or hadn't yet, you know, been exposed in the classical world who may have actually been quite well-known already in other other fields. So then the recording can actually do what you can't quite do in the 
concert hall. I mean, not yeah. you personally, but where you the risk wouldn't be taken with the three thousand seat theater. You can do that with with the recording, right? Is that yeah? I think so. There were live recordings as most orchestra recordings are now, and I think at that time we could get an audience because I think Nico was starting to get a lot of buzz at that time. I think Johnny Greenwood was obviously famous from Radiohead, and we. Our recording of uh, Popcorn Superhead Receiver actually preceded his own, oh, you know, uh, that was released on Nonesuch. Uh, with his permission, we asked if we could release this. And so our recording was the premier recording of that piece. I mean, the first recording ever made that was released. And in fact, there was an article written, it's like, why is no one paying attention to this in some pitchfork or something like that? So that, you know, got some attention and it was a good recording. And then uh, Richard Reed Perry from Arcade Fire, who's done subsequently a lot of work, kind of chamber music. So those three people uh, tended, they, they did get attention because they were interesting artists, like beyond classical music at that time. They were all writing compelling music, at least music I thought was compelling. So it was like almost a no-brainer, and the orchestra got behind it, and, and it, was, it was wonderful. Nico and I, I think I just kind of wrote him out of the blue because I heard his first bedroom community record and I, I loved it and it spoke to me and I think that kind of opened up you know he's a he's a connector and linked to all sorts of other people so I think I had him do a concert um, in Canada with me and he brought Richie um, from Richard Reed Perry along and this musical universe started to kind of happen around the orchestra. So what is kind of the answer to why isn't anyone noticing this with the album? I mean, because it's because we're all in our little niches in our bubbles, and and yeah, I mean, it was not a rock album. It was a fringy classical album on an unusual label, but people did notice it. It got tons of attention, actually. So it was reviewed in places that weren't normally reviewed, and I and love so that. and played on on stations or in in kind of media that weren't normally played. So and that's probably that's because of social media, right? Yeah, I think it was there was social media at that time. I think. I, I think it was, uh, I, and it was a great moment for our orchestra because people were saying, oh my gosh, what's going on up here? You guys are, are making a really cool record that everyone is talking about. So so the orchestra musicians must have just loved this. I think they liked right? it. Right, they suddenly were yeah. just kind of catapulted into... Yeah, I mean, there was a point where we were going into Toronto every year to play concerts for six years, you know, which would be like, you know, some sort of orchestra from out out of town going to the middle of town and playing concerts and, and people coming to hear them. It's incredible. I love working with living composers because they're not dead. <laughs> You can call them and like, ask them a question, and even and they even though they're not dead, they still let you do things your way. So you know, usually I mean, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's the best of both worlds. I don't have to like have a séance and and talk to them. <laughs> so tell me about working with with living composers. So give me a little bit more like detail and um, about the collaboration. I mean, obviously some are easier than others. Or yeah, are you basically saying everyone's. I think generally it's great. I think they're thrilled to have their music played live, and if they feel that it's in good hands, then they get very excited and supportive. And it's very touching to me, you know, because it's so close to them, and you feel their gratitude in a certain sense. And, you know, you kind of vibe with certain composers just like you would a soloist or other sorts of collaborators, or you feel that they, you have a, an in to particular ways of doing people's music and some you try and you're like oh well that's nice I think I did okay but you know it's it's just like anything else in life you just you just click with it and usually 
if I'm really interested in it, I tend to have a good way of doing it. Of getting into it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think a lot of, also with new music, you know, I don't only do new music. More and more, a lot of composers really like horizontal lines, whereas it used to be more vertical or the whole new music experience was such a vertical thing. And and I find maybe a lot of the composers with whom I'm most associated, I like have a kind of a, a long line horizontal thing going on. Nico, certainly, or Sarah Kirkland Snyder, or Caroline Shaw, or some of these people. I like that. I like being able to do that in, in new music. And so maybe that's something I tend to gravitate towards. But I also love totally outrageous and crazy things. And Well, it seems like everyone's really open. I mean, I, I can imagine that you come to some of these composers and say, I have this idea, and it's this, and people go nuts. Yeah, or I hadn't thought of that. Or also, they may ask me to do something differently, and I'd be like, sure, yeah, totally, great. Because it's it's just, it's chamber music, except it's with someone's brain, (laughs) imagination instead of their instrument, you know. A living brain. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's very similar to that. Tell me a little bit about the sound, the sound health, um, I guess, is it an initiative, or it's... Sound health, okay. It was a concert. It is an initiative, but it was a concert I did a while back at the Kennedy Center, and it was it's a big Renee Fleming project. Yeah, so many, many years ago, I did a thing called Beethoven in Your Brain. Tell I me met, about that. I met Dan Levitin, who wrote This Is Your Brain on Music. He was coming through my town in Canada, where my orchestra was, and he, he and I did a pre-concert talk. He had mostly a rock background and knew lots of rock musicians, and I asked him if he had ever done a kind of a brain thing through a classical lens, and he had not. You know, it just wasn't the music he listened to that much. And so I thought it would be fun to collaborate, and we said, what about a Beethoven symphony? And wrote a show that we both hosted and played, talking about how the brain interacts with music. And there are a lot of people who have things to say about that, and that it's uh, reductive and undermines the aesthetic experience. Like, I've heard that criticism. And, and we weren't really trying to do that. And I think there is, you know... You were... So it was mostly just based out of curiosity? Like, yeah. you really wanted... Was there... Um, no, it was a fun... Well, that's what everything I do is based out of curiosity. But I, it was... It was what I was really kind of taken by is is the idea that your brain is already always sorting out patterns. And that when you hear a, a piece of music with recurring ideas. We call it ear contact, things that come back to you, that hold you through a half-hour piece. Um, Your brain, even if you don't understand music, is sorting things out and making sense of it. It ended up being a very empowering concert for the audience because so many people come into classical music and saying, I don't know enough, I don't understand enough. And we were telling them, yes, you do. You You just don't realize it. It's going on in the background. Exactly. And you should just trust whatever your body is telling you. And allow it. in your brain. And it could be something different from every person. People have different reactions to music. Um, But we even did live polling. You know, how did this make you feel? And we had clickers in the audience. Oh, my gosh. And and not everyone had the same reaction, but very many people did, you know, at least in a multiple-choice sense. We also found out people could remember keys and what a C minor sounded like after taking a detour through A-flat major, like in Beethoven V, and we did a multiple-choice quiz of playing three different keys, the third movement of Beethoven V, and I think 97% remembered what C minor was just by listening. So your body knows, your your nerves know, this music does communicate, and that was a pretty amazing thing for me to think about. 
Have you read The Talent Code? It was I have lot. not. Oh, okay. Anyways, it's a lot about this um, nerve building and basically that that we're there's no one special when it comes to music. Like you have the ability to to train your mind to do anything. Yeah. That's why they shouldn't be surprised, right? No, but they are because they're, you know, it's whatever the the elitism and... Right. You know, and that was, you know, the industrial age, that this was, classical music was a place to see and be seen. It was a place for the elite. And unfortunately, you know, that's still in our way. And even to this day, people still kind of, they're, whatever they envision, the imagery or the branding or the the way in which classical music presents itself creates inhibitors that get in the way of actual listening. Right. That it's there almost as like a feature of the experience. Right? Yeah. So I'm really about getting rid of that without dumbing down the music. Because, in fact, it's just, it, it actually dumbs down the music. It does. If you think about all these, these quote-unquote, you know, when it dumbs down the collective too. Yeah. Right. I've, I have people come up to me constantly. Oh, I want to go to a concert. I'm just. I don't know what to do there. I feel awkward. Do I clap? What do I wear? And I think, wow, that we're still having these discussions. Like in 2018, classical musicians don't want to think that people right aren't thinking about this, but they are thinking about this all the time, and as frustrating and as sad as it is. We have to confront this harsh reality that these things really still matter to the audience, and we haven't. And they're thinking about far them. enough. They're thinking about them so much. They're watching the orchestra. Right? Can you imagine going into a room like that and not knowing anything that's going yeah. on? And I also think it's interesting. Like orchestras are funny, right? Because they don't acknowledge collectively that they're being watched. Generally, <laughs> jazz musicians do, actors do, dancers do. You know, but orchestras do not. There's there's this kind of group mentality that they can play and look unenthusiastic. You know, potentially or not. Now it doesn't mean you have to show off. You know, or or mug for the audience. But I think the idea that you're being watched um, and just collective acknowledgement of that and what that might mean to a concert performance would be a big breakthrough. I agree. And it just that wall would be removed. I did a concert a couple weeks ago, Pasadena Symphony, and right after we did Beethoven 3, this guy from the audience ran up, the violas were on the outside, and he just ran up in the middle of the pause and put his hand out and he shook my hand while we were on stage. And it seemed so outrageous. And of course, I reached down and shook well, his hand. Well, I never. And I'm like in the last stand viola. I thought, great, why not? Why not just come on through? Well, tell me a little bit how you see that shifting, and is this kind of your, are you an activist for... I'm an activist for that. And I think, how can I make a concert into an experience from beginning to end? How can I remove these barriers and hopefully not impose too much on top of the music and give people a connection, an emotional connection to what they're hearing? Through, through the performance itself, right. through playing great, which is by far the most important, way of doing it. I mean, the performance venue itself is kind of emphasizing this old... It's a huge emphasis on separation. In fact, we had this series in my orchestra in Canada, and it was, we would play lots of music, but there would only be 300 people in the, you know, so 50 people in the orchestra, maybe 300 people in the room, so really close. And it was amazing, because people were just so, the aquarium feeling wasn't there. I think so much of orchestra concerts are like going to an aquarium. You know, there's this, you're just looking through the glass at something, another world. And that's okay with me, you know, as an audience member, because I know the music so well, and I I know how to interact with it that way. And it can be an incredible interaction, you know, that kind of church-like, you know, 
late Beethoven, you know, Mahler 9, or, I mean, I, I don't want to discount that or think that that's oh, no. not a really the greatest experience ever, but you have to get people there. And I wonder if some of us are just going to have to deal with different kinds of situations. I went to a concert their day was presented in a new kind of innovative way, but it was distracting, mm-hmm. and I kind of had a terrible time because I thought, yeah, oh. it can be so bad. But that I thought maybe is that me? Just not like it's okay if people are walking around and clinking beer glasses. Like it's okay. That was interesting, actually. But there Mahler some Nine re- is it? No, not Mahler <laughs> Nine. There are some really bad versions of this out there. Okay. Of of new formats. New you know. formats. Or it's disconnected from what the music is, like Beethoven 5 and beer, you know? Well, Or in a beer garden. In a beer, but <laughs> Beethoven 5, you know, actually may have taken place in a beer garden or some sort of kind of messy public venue, you know, from what we know of concerts in that place at that time. It wasn't as nice as it is now. Right. But, you know, what is the intention of Beethoven 5? Is to have a good time and drink beer? Probably not, you know? Is there some Mozart and Haydn music, which is good for beer? Perhaps. It, it, it depends, you know? And I think you have to look into the spirit of the music itself. What is the composer trying to say? How can we help him or her communicate that message in the most direct way? That's how I think. And be true to what we think the music is. And so it does, taste does come into it, having good and bad taste and understanding the music. And I think sometimes those ways, you know, these attempts to reformat classical music can be even more damaging than what we're doing already. But we have to risk things. We have to take risks, right? Well, not to be irreverent to the repertoire, but do you think it's time that commissions from living composers are tailored to this kind of new format? To say, I think composer would ha- probably love it, yeah. Right? yeah. Now, here's what's going to happen. There will be beer, there will be people mo- walking around, write a piece that right. works towards that. And maybe they don't want to do it. So Exactly, next composer. Which is fine, <laughs> exactly. And maybe some do. I mean, I don't really, I, I have problems with music that demands a lot of attention being played in formats that distract so, like, I don't, you know, if I'm hearing Webern Opus 21, I don't want, you know, clinking beer glasses. Because no. I can't interact. I don't think that's a legit interaction with that piece. doesn't mean it's the worst thing ever to do, but I'm just, I don't, I wouldn't do it. And I think when we did this um, thing in San Francisco Symphony, Soundbox, which I've done a lot of, it's a bar and it's a social format for sure, but we were really interested, and this is like Michael Tilson Thomas and I and whoever was on the team trying to create this format of, of getting people in and out of the social element and directing people's attention. We were able to do that, and to this day, there's drinking time, and then somehow we can snap people back into really being right there with the music. And it's actually a quite a rapt audience. They don't get distracted when the music is playing. And so at first, we started even doing countdowns and like alerts, like we're back to music time and, <laughs> yeah. and in, a, in a kind of a inviting way. And as the series has gone on, I think people just know, you know, they can you know, put their drink down or sip quietly, <laughs> you know, or whatever they need to do and, and, and listen to this. I think it's been working well. But it's all about the music. Ultimately, it has to be. When I love that it's expanding the creativity of, of the people that are putting it together, Right? Yeah. That this is the burdens on all of us to figure this out, not for the audience necessarily to be thrown in a box and then like, well, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, and I, it's something, you know, if I had could tell you as a music student that I'd be writing scripts and working with visual designers and storyboarding concerts, I would I would have been surprised. And I would have been delighted because I love those that concerts. Sounds like, yeah, yeah sounds amazing. but it's, it's a pretty funny world now. And, you know, I think some people have talent for it and some don't, and 
everyone has his or her place in, in the firmament. But I love that. I love, you know, and the more I do it, the better I get at it because it's completely new. Is If you're doing a sandbox concert, you're talking to this crew of people and creating these experiences that are special. And for me, when I was a kid growing up in L.A., I, I was going to Talking Heads concerts and Laurie Anderson concerts. I was really young for these, you know, because my dad was a record executive. And so I would get free tickets, and I was kind of a nerdy kid. I was like, well, let's go to Talking Heads concert. And so at 12, I saw Stop Making Sense, you know, live, that incredible movie. And I walked in the theater, and there was nothing on stage. And David Byrne walked out with a boombox and a guitar and started playing Psycho Killer. And, like, mind blown, they kept adding one band member at a time, and... And Laurie Anderson was also doing incredible stuff at that time and other crazy bands. And that visual element imprinted on me at age 13 or 14. And so it seems actually quite natural now that I'm doing these concerts because it was in my blood from the beginning. When did you start getting into classical music? About the same time. Oh. Yeah. I'm a bass player, so I started late. You know, I, I really was struck by lightning at like age 14 when I found a great teacher and I just went nuts. That happens you know. with bass players. Yeah, we start a bit later. Not, you know, now there are smaller good basses, so you can start younger. But I was listening to lots of other music, and I just was diving deep. I was kind of a, because I got everything free in a certain sense, even though I'm now in my mid-40s, because of the record industry, you know, connection, I would get, like, free records. And so I, I could explore Unbelievable. And deeper and deeper and deeper. And then, you know, classical music may be the deepest. I was like, oh my God, what am I, what is this? You know. Here's what I want to know. So, as a conductor and a bass player, tell me about your like function, how you deal with the basses in an orchestra. Neglected sections. Totally, right? No one understands them. No. Obviously, it's the foundation. I'm always mortified that conductors will just kind of let that go or yell at the violas constantly. It's like, well, they don't even know what to say to the basses. They might not even be able to hear the basses. Okay. You know, because it's a fundamental kind of thing. But I think basses have been so neglected and so many, and I'm not talking about the greatest, but often the bass section will be behind and no one will pay <laughs> attention to them. You know, right. or they'll say basses, you're behind. But it's, it's of course, the back row, the end of the circle of, of these kind of concentric circles that go out from an orchestra. The leadership of the strings is in, in this tiny circle right around the podium. And then... The bases are the principal bases very far away. That's number five, and that doesn't. That's too bad, right? Right. Right. Because actually, the leadership, just because sound travels forward, the leadership should come from the back row, not from the front row. So the whole the whole dynamic is wrong. It's against physics, actually. You know, visually, yeah, you lead from the front. You can't if they can't see you, you can't lead them. But sound also travels, and so to get a bass section to really lead is is a wonderful feeling. You know, brass sections know how to do that because they're they're loud and bossy, right. but they yeah. lead from from the back. And you know, if the brass section is clicking in, then the strings kind of ride along. And so often, my fun is getting the bass section to become helping or allowing or in, encouraging the bass section to them. lead more. Yeah, and uh, and then everyone just kind of relaxes, you know, because the music's not being pulled along from the front. No, it's like sonically being supported. Yeah. How does this work with the different orchestras? Are you, when you're um, hired to conduct, are you allowed to move the bases around? Are you? I don't usually move you as move, a guest okay. conductor, like because if I'm if they're doing what they're doing, it's not the most important thing in the hierarchy of things. And you just deal, and you know how to balance. Yeah, and do all if, that. I'm, okay. if I'm a music director, I'll, I'll I might change the string section, or you know, if you play Transfigured Night with the big orchestra, since the bases have kind of an, kind of an independent part, I put them straight across the back. Um, and that's helpful, but 
usually I don't. Tell me a composer that you, I mean, this could be one from the historic <laughs> canon that you think is very, like, understands the bass beyond oh. a shadow of a doubt. Man, Brahms. <laughs> okay. Nice. Yeah, but Brahms, everyone loves Brahms. But, you know, it's it's all that kind of Bach kind of that, that you know your line is like kind of standing up to the melody a lot. Right, yes. And, 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 it, and it's just such a pleasure to play that music in the, on the instrument. And you feel, you feel like if you play Bach, of course, you know, that's why Baroque bass lines are so fun because those lines are, are so important. But that's like the basic, in the big orchestra world where you really contribute and can move, like Brahms is, is a major person. So Brahms is your go-to. Is this kind of like, I mean, if you had to program... Well, in that kind of music, yeah. Okay, in that kind of music. And what do you really like to conduct? Well, gosh, everything. Everything, okay. I would say, you know, it's as a conductor, it's an interesting thing. I am definitely a fox and not a hedgehog, you know, and so I am not the person who specializes only in, like, late Bruckner symphonies. I love Thank those God. people. <laughs> no, no, I love those people. I'm obsessed with them. Like, they're so obsessed about one little piece of ivory, as, you know, Jane Austen would say. You know, and I think that's, you know, you're you're either predisposed to have, like, a broad outlook or quite a narrow one. And I that's think true. those narrow performances are, are incredible. So I like a lot of, a lot of things. What about a couple, like, niche or um, just not in the, you know, collective consciousness composers that that you think this this needs to be presented or or that you would like to conduct i you know i find that i come back to composers who challenge me the most sometimes and so brahms symphonies are really hard but what about like a a composer that no one really knows? no one knows yeah oh who don't people know like a shimanovsky type yeah not shimanovsky for (laughs) me but um but that you see where I'm going with this. I'm trying to think who I'm conducting a lot of these days that are kind of the weird ones that I do who are, who I keep doing. Because so much of my time now is like advocating for people who are alive. But you must um, have like scores at home of just like super niche orchestral pieces that, that you study in like one day kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know, like niche pieces. That's okay. Like, no, I'm trying to think. There are some composers like Lou Harrison I I want to do much more of. I've been I've been dabbling in like random Henry Cowell symphonies a lot, and I'm a big fan. Um, he wrote a lot. A I lot know of it, a lot of it is really good. I know. I tried to go all the way through last summer. Did you? Yeah, I do. I do these crazy projects in LA traffic where I just go straight through. Symphony number no. four of Cowell, this like very Americana one. I recorded. You can find it on YouTube. Actually, I recorded it or broadcast it with BBC Wales. And um, I'd like to come back to that piece again. Okay, this is exactly it's interesting. what I wanted to hear. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I will. It has a lot of mistakes in the score, I think. And so I, I'd actually like to take that piece and kind of edit it and spend some time on it. Because he has these long fuguing tunes and things like that <laughs> where you really have to figure out whether that's a wrong note or not. And he's a good enough composer that really sour things you can hear even in his the context of his own wandering language but i really was i kind of did a whole cowl thing and came upon number four and then i read his biography and found he, he was actually listening to that piece on his deathbed which was pretty cool so there's something very special about that piece that's oh that's fascinating i love that 
And how many symphonies were there, like, total? It was... 20s? It was over 20? I don't know. Yeah, it was something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite make it. I got to do it again. I did a Shostakovich quartet thing, too. That I didn't Well, those make, are good. That I didn't make it through, but I, I got to do that again. <laughs> the symphonies I did. Yeah. That was fun. I mean, if you're going to be in, like, three hours of traffic, it's like... Do I was it. kind of interested in this, like, French revolutionary music, like, Meul, M-E-H. Yeah, I, I kind of really want to do one of his symphonies, because um, they're proto beethoven you know. But from France and from that's wait who Meul? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Opera composer. Yeah, and he yeah. has symphonies that are pretty good. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, I okay. like those. And um, what about like turn of the twentieth century French composers? There's so many. Oh, I'm obsessed with all that stuff. Okay, good. But so some of it, like <laughs> I find a little brown, like uh, was it Roussel. I mean, it's good, but it it's not as I don't know. I found Tournemir. I don't know Tornemir. Oh, he's got some symphonies. Okay. Florent Schmidt. Florent Schmidt. I'm obsessed. I like with. the the tragedy of Salome. That's a cool mm-hmm, piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love all the impressionist stuff. I find you know that's repertoire. I kind of it's interesting. Also, as a conductor, you might find that, and I've seen this in other conductors. It's probably the case for me too. Is that some of the pieces you don't try that hard with, and you just kind of let happen and come naturally out of you, tend to be the best sometimes and the more that's for everyone probably yeah like any sort of player like you know if you just breathe the music and it's there's not too much brain in the way and it it's and it fits your temperament then it's it's wonderful and i i love all that french stuff i find i just breathe a lot of that stuff and so many composers like coming out of the woodwork and when, once you scratch that surface of that period of time it's mm-hmm. like wait we just thought about ravel and Debussy. like this is insane there's hundreds Okay, we have to do the your Wrigley Field. Mm. Yeah, the Wrigley Field project. I was called by someone, friend of a friend, and they've built this large area now called Gallagher Way, right next to Wrigley Field. And all sorts of things happen in this space. It's at a busy intersection. So is it like a promenade or? Yeah, it's a park. Oh, okay. It's, it's a, kind of a public space. So you'll get the feeling just by my describing it. It's, they'll have a farmer's market there. They have morning yoga there. During baseball games, they have a screen, and you can sit outside and watch the game right next to the stadium. Uh, so it's a multi-use public gathering space. And the organization wanted an art series. And so somehow that got to me. I live only a few blocks from there, actually. And, and my friend Tim Higgins, who's in the San Francisco Symphony, is principal trombone, and... So my idea was, well, what would that look like? And what do we have? We have multiple stages. We have a jumbotron. <laughs> we have the kind of the team that puts on a baseball game, meaning puts stuff on the screen. So what we're going to try is, is to kind of use the sports technology to kind of create a, a concert where you're, you're getting more info like up on the screen. So we have live camera work. You know, we've done questionnaires of all the players so we can have like the bottom third of the screen have like stats and info. The musician players. Yeah, yeah, the musicians. The game's and not going on. <laughs> no, no, this will be on a, not on a game day, but but it, it'll look like a game, you know, like the players are batters or pitchers. And, and I think that's going to be really interesting. So when this kind of... You can either pay attention to the concert or you can look up at the screen and see, you know the fun facts that are going on. 
I've always liked that about sports, how you can kind of turn your attention. Or, you know, if you're watching a game, you can find out more, you know, as you're watching it. Or get, you know, follow the information in real time. And I, I'm, I, that was my that challenge in, of this series, which is called The Lineup. So several stages, you know, stuff on the screen, kind of using the technology and interface of big professional sports to kind of inform a classical music concert. We'll see if it works. I think it's going to work. I think it might. I think WC wrote an, a ballet about this. About no, tennis. <laughs> you should do yeah. it. <laughs> you should have live. That would be really cool to do. Je, Dish, live, uh, that's, just the, that's just the ballet would be that, though, right? You could just do like You could do balls. with sports. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Hmm. I'll just think about that. Je. Good piece. Very good piece. That's that's gonna be really fascinating. I've always noticed that the audience just is just intrigued by the players on stage. Yeah, like, you, know, you know they'll come to you after they say, "Oh, I noticed you moved over a couple seats," and you think, "Oh, wow, these people are." It is that same kind of mentality, right? The orchestras only knew how much people care about them. Oh, you know, and and you know they've done dumb, well, not dumb things, but they've had the orchestra player, you know, the baseball cards and things like that. But I think that's something. I've seen at New World Symphony, which is pretty interesting, and I think it could be there could be much more done. Is is player backgrounds? They do um, video profiles before the concert start of individual players. Um, San Francisco Symphony has a great series of YouTube videos about individual players, beautifully shot. And Edwin, don't you think there could be like maybe in a certain sense, like get away with the pre-concert talk on certain things? Just have. Random oboist come out and just yeah. tell I mean, her people, life story. People do that, but they do. Yeah, I think I think there are two problems. You know, one is how do we connect orchestras to people who have never heard orchestras before? And well, there's that's the one problem. And so, so now you know, orchestras play a lot of movies. They work with musicians from other genres, and I think all of these things are important, and they do broaden the audience of what is essentially a civic institution that should be for a city and not just a very small group of people, in my opinion. So all of that is good, but that does not solve the problem of the quote-unquote subscription concert being an anachronism as far as how it's presented. And so we know this, that having pops concerts or film concerts or rock concerts, that you'll get big audiences, you'll make revenue, but it's probably not going to increase your classical series audience. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So I think there's a lot happening on the fringes and, and this kind of collaboration kind of idea of an orchestra is, you know, working with other kinds of music, which is great. But I, there's far too little attention being paid on the main thing itself, which is the classical series, is how can we get more people in there? It's not by doing film concerts, but it's by somehow taking a good hard look at that concert series and seeing how we could make it more appealing to people and not just kind of a mystery or a bit of an anachronistic or industrial age experience. And because that is a sacred space for music, which it is because we revere the music in that space and it's quiet and it's concentrated, people are afraid to mess with it. Right, to disrupt it. For good reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But somewhere, somewhere along that line... I would say that's, yeah, and it's a separate problem. But we're all such creative people. It can't yeah. be that difficult to solve. No, I think it's totally solvable. But you know, you have to be, you have to be able to fail or be able to take a chance, and you have to have stewards of of the sacred space who trust in the music and 
are willing to take a risk and still believe in what, what it's all about in the first place. And don't you think it has to be sold properly? I mean, I think a lot of times the administration is just dealing with the the ask, the fundraising. Yeah. They don't also have time to say, and look, we also need your help with this. Right. But it's, you know, selling it is hard if you don't know what it is. Right. And right. if you're an audience member and you don't know what it is, it's hard to sell to you. Right. And let's face it, a lot of times the administration doesn't really know what they're, I mean, they know what they want to do, but they don't know how to sell it. Yeah. Right. And it's, and and I think you can't sell every composer because the audience doesn't know who the composers are, and then you get in the trap of playing the same music over and over. Um, one thing that in the 21st century that sells quite well are experiences. And so if you can sell a classical series concert as an experience, that might be the way. That's my instinct of what might work. But we're very far from that. We're selling it as Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto <laughs> with Long Long. Yes. And then uh, we can get, maybe sneak something cool on there if we're, you know, if we're lucky. But to go from that to the other thing is, is hard because you're, you're risking losing audience and losing revenue because they know to a certain extent, you know, the Tchaikovsky with Long Long is working and, and it will continue to work. It's not going to stop working, but, Whoa, you yeah, know, we don't want it but to it, stop it working. could, yeah, exactly. But it, it's, it's a, it's a real thoughtful kind of thing. I always felt like it needs to be more of a boots on the ground thing. Composers, everyone just needs to get out there and meet with, meet with the donors, meet with the audience and just say, here's what I, there's, there's a lot of, there's like a lot of times not enough personal interaction. Yeah. It's like you write a check, I get on stage, we go our separate ways. Yeah. And that, I think, is the problem, actually. Yeah, it's too anonymous, it's too big. Yeah, absolutely. Let me come over for lunch, and let's just talk about music. And, and that, what do you all, like? that happens, but, you know, it's, and it, it's also, a, I would say, yes, that's probably the best way. And in 10 years in Canada, where I, I apparently, you know, raised the audience by 40% and donations by 60%, like I was a part of that. It was, it was boots on the ground and one person at a time and one handshake at a time and one interaction at a time. And so it was playing a long game for a long time. And, and seeing where that goes. And I think that's very possible. People have to be patient. But they also have to have a strategy. Like, exactly. If we're playing this game, where is it, what's the end game? Where are we going with it? What are we doing this for? Right. Okay, so Edwin, thank you so much for being here. That was fun. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.